Welcome to Win Win, a podcast from the Department of Sport and Exercise Science at the Waterford Institute of Technology. I'm your host, Bruce Wardrop, and in each episode, I'll be chatting with someone who works behind the scenes in sport, helping athletes to maximise their performance potential. If my guest is winning, hopefully their athletes are winning too. Today, I'm excited to catch up with Patrick Harding, who is personal performance coach to Alex Albon, the racing driver currently contracted to the Williams F1 team and previously with Red Bull Racing. Patrick, Patrick, yeah, rather, you're very welcome to the show. <laughs> no worries, don't worry, I'd be called a lot worse than that. Yeah, oh, thank, I, you, thank you for having me on. Yeah, I get the same with my name. My name's awkward and I've been called all sorts. <laughs> uh, listen, thanks a million for agreeing to chat with me today. I'm, 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 I am genuinely excited to speak to you. And first up, you guys were away competing in Saudi Arabia at the weekend, but where are you now? Yeah, back in London, got back last last night. Um it, it was actually a triple header to start the year. So we had a, a week of testing in Bahrain, then a week later, Bahrain first race, and then, yeah, Saudi Saudi straight afterwards. So it's been a pretty intense start to the season. So have you been away for that whole time? Yeah, I managed to get back for for three days in between Bahrain test and Bahrain race. But, yeah, I've been in, in the UK for, what, four days in the last three weeks. So, yeah, like I said, pretty intense, but, but yeah, a nice way to start the season. Okay, ways. I'm actually going to I'm going to skip my first question and come back to it in a minute because yeah. this this lets us dive straight into it. So, Absolutely. one thing I was wondering is for you um, as 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 a performance coach, and then for your driver, do you guys have a home base? Like, where do you where would you consider your home base? Yeah, so Alex um, lives in Monaco um, and has done for the last three three and a half years. Um, his parents, his family live in Milton Keynes, and then the factory is the Grove, which is up in Oxfordshire, the far side of Oxford City. Um, so our base is fluid. Um, I spend some time in Monaco with him, and then when he's back in the UK, we train wherever he's closest. Um, I work out of a boxing gym in South London with some professional boxers as well, Michael Conlon being one. And Alex loves getting down there to train. So it really just depends on availability and time and, and location. So, yeah, like I said, it's, it's a lot more fluid than just having a single base and, and working from one, one area. Yeah, that's one thing I was wondering. Like, do you guys try to make it back to a home base between races or depending on the schedule? You know, I think later on in the season, you've got a couple like USA, Mexico, Brazil. So would you stay away for those that block rather than trying to make it back to Europe? in between? Yeah, it, it really just depends. It really just depends on in terms of what his either factory or commercial commitments are in between those races and actually physically where we are in the world does it make sense to even try and get back through the time zones just to come back a week later and try and reset? And what we'll generally do sometimes when we're away like that, and there may be a 10 day break in between, if it's a place that we like being, we'll do a mini training camp in those places and then move on to the next race. It, look, it, for me, um, it's about over the last three or four years, working with Alex, finding a balance between what we need to achieve from a professional point of view. And then for me as an individual, having that time away from Alex in that environment to be able to reset myself. Um, you know, me and Alex get along like a house on fire. And part of that reason is we're both introverts by nature. And when I say about introverts by nature, it's we both get our energy from either being on our own or being in our own happy place. Um, and for Alex, that's being back in Milton Keynes with his family and his cats and his dog. And and for me, that's, that's again, being at home here in London or home in Ireland, being on my own or, or being with a select group of people because that environment is so intense, we really do need to dip out of that to recharge your energy. And it's really important for Alex's performance that when I turn up to a race, I'm in the right place possible to support him to be in the right place possible. So 
like I said, over the last three or four years, we've, we've really honed in on what we both need from a recovery perspective to be ready for each race weekend. Um, so, yeah, we factor that in and, and we're really comfortable being together at the same time. And we're also very comfortable being apart. So it, it's not like, you know, I follow him everywhere he goes or, or he follows me. Um, we know it's both important. We, we, know, we both know for the, for the health of the relationship, it's important to have time apart and also for ourselves and our own mental and physical health to have time away from that environment. So, yeah, okay, yeah, you're, 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 you've alluded to a few things there. So, first of all, you guys must spend a lot of time together. So, it, it, would you consider Alex to be your, your main client? Is, is Alex your job, um, yeah. your primary job? Yeah, you know what? It's, it's weird. It's got to the point where he's probably a friend first. Yeah. Um, and somebody over the last four years that I have spent more time with than my wife and my family. Um, and will do this year. And that's a huge time commitment. When you think about, you know, I've lived away from home. Ireland is home. Lived away from home for about 12 years now. And, you know, been married for five. And I would say in that time, collectively, I've spent more time with Alex than I have with, with my family and with my, with my wife. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a huge time commitment. He, he is my main client in terms of a business sense. Um, I do have four professional boxers and a professional golfer as well. But they all have varying degrees of input. And at the minute, I can just about juggle it all. But, but I have a really good understanding right now of when somebody asks me what they need to be delivered, I can say, yes, no, I have the capacity. I don't have the capacity. I think when you're earlier in your career, you, you're afraid to say no to work because when that question comes up, you're afraid that you won't get asked again. And I think I'm in a point in my career now where I'm pretty comfortable saying yes and no. And, and actually, it's more about the individual than the job itself. So, yeah, yeah. Going back to it, Alex is my main client. He, he takes up the majority of my time. You know, we're talking 23 races this year in the calendar. We've already had two test weeks. So you're looking at at least 25 weeks a year of travel. We've done a two-week training camp in LA at the start of January. So that's up to 27 weeks. Uh, and the likelihood is there'll be another week or two tacked onto that as well. So, so yeah, it's, it's it's more than a full time job for sure. Yeah, big commitment. It's it's funny now because only this morning I was talking to a student who I uh, she's a big F one fan. Uh, hey Naomi, uh, and <laughs> she uh, she was t- saying to me today that she is trying her best to get better at saying no to things because she's finding yeah. that hurts her time. She she's finding herself stressed because she's saying yes to things. I I think I thought that that was quite mature of her for her, at, at the stage yeah. that she's at for her to realise so. that and to try and try and act on it. And um, and look. And to, to not to interrupt you, but it's important that you understand what your capacity is. And I think you can only really understand that by going over it. And, you know, even me in at my stage in my career last year, you know, Alex was made a reserve at Red Bull. So my travel commitment with him was drastically reduced. We were still training together. But like I said, the amount of time I was going to be away was reduced. And at the start of last year, I kind of had that moment where I was like, okay, I've got a lot of free time now, free. Um, what can I take on? And I took on a draw, driver in Formula 3, and I ended up going to the Tokyo Olympics with Team GB. And I took on a few other projects. And actually, I think I ended up being busier last year than I, than I perceived at the start of the year, and probably busier than if I only had Alex to work with and those other clients. So even at, even at my stage in the, my career, I don't always judge that properly. What I will say for anybody starting out in their career, it's good to be busy because that busyness is experience um, and that's learning. 
Yeah, that's important for them to hear. That's one of the questions I will come back to, but I think yeah. we might rewind just a little bit and, and we'll go back to the, to, to, to the very start. First up, what is it that you do? So you, you're, you, you're on your, your, your LinkedIn page, you are a performance coach for Alex yeah. Albon. So let's just start with start at the basics. What do you do with Alex or what, yeah. how, how would you describe your job? Absolutely. I mean, if I'm being facetious, I'll say I'm an au pair for an adult. <laughs> but I'm a chartered physiotherapist um, qualified out of the University of Ulster in Jordanstown. I've got a master's in strength and conditioning. So I'm a strength and conditioning coach and I'm a qualified mental performance coach as well, predominantly in the LLP. Um, and I've been in professional sport for about 13, 14 years now. And I guess a performance coach for me is combining that skill set and putting that package around individual athletes um, to help them to grow as individuals as well as sportsmen and sportswomen in their elite environment. So I very much see my role now and, and my philosophy of my company very much is you're developing the individual first. The sport is kind of like a little bit of a sideshow to that because if you're developing a healthy, happy individual, then performance runs alongside that. And I think we can be very careful about putting the cart before the horse and, and thinking all about performance, but actually performance is just the execution of mental and physical strategies that you develop outside of the sport arena. So, yeah, like I said, it, it's putting that package of skill set that I've got and experience around these individual athletes, understanding what they need physiologically and physically to be equipped for their environment, but also what do they need mentally in terms of the emotional strategies to be successful in that environment, in, in the execution of that skill set. And, and that's probably one of the biggest things I've learned over the last 10 years is you know, when you get to a certain level in sport, the actual difference in the technical ability is very, very little, a, a minuscule. And really all it comes down to is that individual's ability, ability to execute consistently under pressure. And with that, some of those fluffy edges around travel, around nutrition, around sleep, around recovery, that just give that little edge to that cognitive performance that can be the difference between, you know, we're talking in the Olympics, between a, a, a gold medal and, and eighth place in a race can be a couple of tenths of a second. You look at F1 qualifying, the difference between P1 and P10 can be two or three tenths of a second. You know, those margins are so small that some of those little finishing touches in terms of that preparation, physical preparation, mental preparation can be the difference between success and perceived non-success. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fine art. Yeah, so you're you're putting together a whole package, yeah. a holistic package around your athletes. Absolutely. You um, so you started off. You mentioned there. You started off as in in physiotherapy. Uh, I think did you follow up with the the MSc in strength and conditioning then, and then yeah. the 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 psychological the, the the mental game came into it at the end. Was yeah. that kind of a natural progression that you saw based on the athletes that you were working with, or is yeah. it something you developed interest in as you went along? Uh, how did that whole piece come together for you? Absolutely. Look. And this is probably a good piece of advice that I tend to give people. You know, it took, you know, I've got two master's degrees. One is a little bit of an offshoot. But, you know, my strength and conditioning master's came about nine or ten years after I qualified as a physiotherapist. And I'd already been working in professional sport for at least eight of those years. And it took me that length of time to really understand if I was going to commit to a master's degree, how it was going to positively impact my practice. And I think you could have been really careful about just finishing your degree and thinking, right, the next thing I have to check off this list is a master's because everybody's looking for a master's now. And that's not how it is. So if, if I get people applying for a job with me, the first thing I look at is your experience. 
I don't care if you have a PhD and, and four masters. That doesn't mean that you can speak to an emotionally uh, troubled athlete who's just had a poor performance or because you've spent 10 minutes in an elite sport environment. If you've got a degree and you've had three or four years experience in different levels of sport, immersing yourself in teams, you know, being, being able to demonstrate that you can talk to coaches, that you can be in difficult positions, that you have a philosophy and you can stick to that philosophy because you've honed that philosophy in that, in that environment. You're much more valuable to me as a company than, than just somebody who's, who's ticked MSC boxes. So it took me that length of time to figure out what I really want to do. And what that was really born out of was I was working in Olympic sports with Team GB. And what I, I saw as a real gap in my skill set was that real end stage of rehab where athletes were coming back to perform at the elite environment, handing over to SNC coaches. And I felt like I had a real gap in my knowledge of how to transition them from that last bit of clinical intervention to, okay, you're good to go. Let's reintegrate back into full training. And as well as that, I found more and more I was having conversations with coaches around their periodization, around recovery, around um, athletes needing a break and, and allowing for that adaptation to happen. And I felt like I wasn't getting the credibility that that conversation needed to have a positive outcome because I was perceived as being a physio. And some of the stigma you get in sport is, here's the physio, they just want my athletes to rest all the time. They, you know, I need to push this athlete to the edge and they're just going to tell me to pull the athlete back. And that was very much an attitude that I got in football when I was at Arsenal. And I felt like having that skill set and being saying, well, actually, no, I, I can, we can talk about the science behind this because I am an S&C coach, because I have a master's degree in strength and conditioning. The other factor around it, it was just an area I was always interested in. I, I trained and played football a lot, played soccer a lot. I, I competed a lot in different sports. I'm always, you know, for me, training is my happy place in terms of my, my mental reset. So it was just an area that I had a, a desire to learn more about. And, you know, I'd, I'd upskill a lot by reading and by spending a lot of time with some really awesome S&C coaches, but I wanted to formalize that. And, and the opportunity came up to do that full time when I was working at Arsenal and, and I loved it. And it's, it's really compounded the skill set I had as a physiotherapist to the point now where I really can't understand as a physio undergrad that some of these S&C principles aren't integrated into that physio course. Because when we think about rehab and, and we think about S&C, there's components of S&C in all stages of rehab. And as a physiotherapist, particularly working in MSK, that's vital to have that understanding of those principles if we really, truly want to get our athletes and, and Joe Bloggs back to back to normal health or back to competing in an athletic environment. So, yeah, it, it was multifactorial. But again, like I said, it, it took me some time to figure out that that's what I really wanted to do. And it, it's what would impact my career in the most positive way. Um, so, uh, look, delighted I did it. And, it, and it's massively supported my career development. But also it was important for me not to rush into something. Yeah. So it was, yeah, it was timely. Like, you know, you could look at it from one pers perspective to say that eight or nine into your years into your career, mm. it's, you know, it's late to be taking on something new, but you're saying there that you, it, it was very, very timely and it's boosted your career since. Yeah. yeah. And look, I went into sport as a physiotherapist. I could never see myself being in sport for 30 years as a physiotherapist. And that's no, that's not, derogatory to anybody who's who's a clinical specialist physio working in sport i think it's amazing just the way my mentality is i would always want to be doing something a little bit different at different points in my career just for freshness 
and and I, if you ask me, I still say, you know, I'm a, I'm a physiotherapist at heart, and I, I clinically treat a lot still. Um, but those other additions in terms of skill set have allowed me to be much more fluid and much more adaptable in my career, and to offer different packages to different athletes depending on their needs. Hmm. So. I've- I spoke to someone else previously who she worked with British Gymnastics and she said it was expressed saying that, you know, oftentimes people will work in silos. They stay, you know, stay in their mm. specialist area, whereas what she's looking for on her performance team with British Gymnastics is people who are a bit more generalist, who yeah. have expertise, knowledge in certain areas, but can cross over and dip their toes yeah. into the other areas to, to interact well as part of the performance team that's working behind the scenes. Yeah. Absolutely. So not just, you know, having, having that mix of skills. And I guess it's important for you because with in Formula One, you know, you're the guy. You're, you, I presume you don't have a physio or a deck doctor or a, no. a sports science and medical team following you around the place. So you have to be that generalist um, to, 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 to work effectively with Alex. Yeah. And it's a really unique role. And actually, I didn't really know it existed until I got one, which is a bizarre <laughs> thing to say. And, and you're right. It, it's probably one of the only sports where, you are that one individual and each driver has one of those individuals. And actually now in Formula 2, the category below, probably every driver in Formula 2 has a, co- a performance coach. And even in down into Formula 3, I would say 80% of drivers in Formula 3 have a performance coach. So that's that's one thing. So I, I, it, Alex was made his debut in 2019, but I read that you've been working with him for about four years. So I, you were working with yeah. him before Formula 1. So how did that come about? How did you end up working with him? Yeah, so I was in Formula 2 with a Japanese driver called Tadasuka Makino. Um, and there was two dra- two Japanese drivers in Formula 2 that year, a guy called Nare Fukuzumi and, and Makino. And Alex was really friendly with Fukuzumi. They were they were just good mates. They had been at another team called ART together the year before in Formula 3. And just by virtue of only being two Japanese drivers, I spent a lot of time with Makino, Fukuzima, and then Alex. And Alex had no performance coach support that year. So we ended up just getting to know each other pretty well. Um, my driver had a really good season and ended up going back to Japan to race Super Formula and Super GT. And Alex got the call that summer to go to to um, Toro Rosso and, and he, he knew I was free because Makino had moved and we'd had some interaction and he just said look are you interested in working with me do you want to have a conversation so I was like yeah of course we sat down we kind of you know fundamentally and it's weird how you make these decisions on people I knew we had a very similar sense of humor and for me that was a really good starting point um, and we just sat and we talked a little bit about philosophy and I told him a little bit how I like to work and, and the kind of training that we would be doing and he seemed to engage with that really well. And we said, right, let's give it a go. And yeah, we started, you know, we, we transitioned to Formula One together, you know, and then, then, yeah, it's been a bit of a roller coaster journey since then, um, all in a really positive way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's our fourth season together and, and the relationship is probably stronger than it's ever been. Yeah, so that was kind of a, the timing was serendipitous there for yeah. the two of you that you hooked up. So one of the one of the common questions we've had loads. Connor was the first student to come in and ask me. Like big fans of Formula One these days, they're all curious how to to break into it. So when even when mm. you were in Formula Two, those Japanese athletes that you're working with, how did you end up there with them? Yeah. If we go back a step further than that, absolutely. I mean, Twitter of all places. So <laughs> and, and I was expecting that answer. Yeah, I know, and and look, I bear. I, I barely engage with social media from a Twitter perspective. But what happened was I had been in my master's in SNC and got on really well with a couple of lecturers. And obviously they knew I was working in professional sport. I 
come off the back of being um, lead physio for British Canoeing at the Rio Olympics and then moved to Arsenal. So I was working in professional sport. And one of my lectures was on the UK Strength and Conditioning Association board. And another guy on the board was a guy called Pete McKnight. And he just tweeted one day, looking for physios with experience in elite sport and S&C qualifications for some interesting roles with, a, with, a, with another company called Hints of Performance. And two of my lecturers tweeted him back saying, speak to this guy and drop my tag in it. So got a message from Pete DM, look, don't know what your work situation is like at the minute, but we've got some roles. You've been highly recommended. Do you want to have a conversation? And at the time, I probably felt like uh, I needed a change from Arsenal. And I had started doing some individual work with Michael Conlon and Paul Dunn, the golfer. And I was really enjoying the level of detail that you could get into with individuals. So I said, yeah, let's have a conversation. Ended up doing four rounds of interviews, really intense, intense interviews, but still didn't know what the job was, but kind of had an idea it was elite performance based on the interviews I was doing. And then in the last interview, yeah, had had an interview with, with the head of medicine for, for hints, and they were like, look, for confidentiality reasons, we couldn't tell you, but we supply form, we supply performance coaches to Formula One, Formula Two, Formula Three drivers, and we'd really love you to we'd really love to place you with one of our drivers. And I was like, okay, know nothing about motorsport, know nothing about performance within motorsport, um, and they're like, look, it's no problem. Somebody of your experience can adapt, etc. So no problem. Got a phone call about a week later, saying we have a driver in Formula One. Um, we think you'd be really good. There's two coaches in mind and you're one of them. We'd like you to come and meet the driver. And and I was just not really prepared for what I'd entailed. So I, I got a little bit more detail from them. And two of the things they said to me was, look, you're probably going to have to give up your other contracts with Michael and Paul because of the time commitment. And I, w- I just didn't feel comfortable doing that. But also I didn't feel comfortable stepping into Formula One having had absolutely no experience in it. Now, I, I would back myself to be able to adapt to that. But at the same time, it, it's the elite of the elite. And, and I'm the kind of individual who likes to be prepared. I'm a risk taker, but there's a little bit of a line whereby it's just pure stupidity. And I was really honest with them. And I said, look, I don't think I want to do that for, for those reasons I've just outlined to you. And I like, really appreciate your honesty. We'll get back to you. And about two weeks later, I got another phone call saying, look, we've got a Japanese driver in Formula 2. It's half the races, half the time commitment. You'll still be able to do your other contracts. And it's just a really good way of dipping your toe in the water. And I was like, right, boom, let's do it. Um, and then that was that role with Tadasuka Makino. Gave me a really good grounding in the motorsport environment. Um, and then when uh, you know when we transitioned from, from Formula 2 to Formula 1, it, it was a piece of cake because I've ha- I'd had that experience in Formula 2. And, you know, I... People would have said at the time I was crazy not to jump at that Formula One role, but I've always I've always backed myself and I've always had a really good understanding of what I wanted to do and I didn't feel comfortable and I never have taken a role just for the role's sake or just for the financial package's sake. The role has to fit me in the in the period that I am within my career. And and you know, like I kind of said, at, at the early points of my career. I probably didn't have as much of that luxury as I do now. And now I can pick and choose. Look, I haven't had to look for a job for about six or seven years. So you you get a little bit of a choice and you get comfortable with that choice. And, and, you know, even if, you know, for whatever reason, the contract ended with Alex tomorrow, I know I would get a job within a month. So 
so so I have a really relaxed approach to that. What I'm really all, all, always doing is just focusing on the job I've got right now and trying to do a really good job of it. So yeah, that's probably a long winded way of telling you how I ended up there. But you know, some by opportunity, some by chance. Yeah, and I think that is so often how it happens. It, mm. it seems very Irish in the way that it is. That yeah. you know, you, sometimes you're in the right place at the right time. But it's that I know that is very re- unique to your situation and to your skill set there. But for you know the students listening who are saying like you know how do I get involved in the yeah. sport that I'm interested in, yeah. you know a lot of it comes down to you know volunteer at the level Absolutely. that you can get in. Get Absolutely. do 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 a good job. Like if you're volunteering with your local club, treat that like it is yeah. the Olympics, like it's Formula One. Do the best job that you can, Absolutely. and keep looking for other opportunities. You know, and then when another opportunity presents itself, apply for that. You've got it. You know, someone yeah. will back you from the previous job you've done, and you just step your way up. I that's, that's how it works. I couldn't agree with you more. And I get so many messages, Instagram and LinkedIn and about you know, you know people who are still in uni or just finished uni how do i get into f1 and i feel so so tempted at times saying give it 10 years yeah. and and then you'll get in and it's like i'm being facetious again but but actually that's what it takes because you don't there's so much in terms of skill set that you need to be able to deliver for those athletes in those environments that straight out of uni you are not ready and I'm sorry, it doesn't matter if you've got a first in every degree you've done. You are not ready for that environment. You're not ready for the intensity of it. I don't think fundamentally you understand yourself, your own philosophy, being able to have really challenging conversations with very powerful people within that sport around protecting your driver or you trying to do the right thing for their performance. So, you know, I can comfortably sit down with a team principal now and argue my case about a preparation need for a driver that I've got. If you asked me to do that 10 years ago, I'd have crumbled under the first sentence. And that's not that's not being disrespectful to myself 10 years ago, but I was a different clinician back then. I didn't have the experience that I've got now. I haven't had to go through the challenges that I have now. So exactly like you said, and you put it so beautifully, and in, in the same way that I would, focus on the job that you've got right now. Learn what you need to learn. Be really aware of the gaps in your knowledge. Fill those gaps. And the better the job you do, the more that will get recognized. And we think that sport is this massive global entity. It's a really small world. It is. And, and it I is. get pinged for jobs in America, in NBA, in NFL, in, in golf. It, once your, your name is out there and you're on a stage, then you don't need to worry about it. But actually, you know, we talk about chance and opportunity. They just open the door. Your skill set and your experience will keep that door open and will walk you through it. So you may get an opportunity, and if you're not ready for it and you don't do the role that you're expected to, then that opportunity is gone, and sport is ruthless like that. So you can try and push that quickly, but then you may not be ready and be prepared for that maybe not to work out. But if you, like we talk about, take your time, get as much experience at every level you can as possible learn what you can learn, grow, develop within that role, grow as an individual, understand what you need to turn up for these people in the right frame of mind. And and partly, you know, you're talking 14, 16 hour days, you're talking loads of days away from home, you're talking missing weddings, missing birthdays, missing anniversaries. Me and my wife have been married for five years and we haven't spent an anniversary together, a wedding anniversary. We, I can't remember the last time we spent a birthday together. So 
there is huge sacrifice. I've been away from my family and my parents for, for years now. I get to see them two or three times a year, but they're the sacrifices you make. And, mm. and if you want to get to that level, then you have to be prepared to make those sacrifices. But you don't need to rush it. You know, I'm, I'm relatively lucky in that my career moved pretty quickly, but I feel like that's, that was reflective of the level of work and effort I put into it. So I was the youngest head physio for Team GB at the Rio Olympics, but I was 33 at that point, and I had already been qualified for eight, nine years as a physio. Now, people were looking at me going, he's young, or that's a bit quick, but that's what it took. So you're talking eight, nine years into my career to get to that level, and that was as just a physio before I added my SNC, before I added my mental coaching and move on from there. So exactly like you said, you know, if we're talking motorsport specific, you know, karting is the place where everybody starts. 99.9% of drivers will start in karting. There's a couple of good young karting drivers in Ireland at the minute. You know, if you look around, a lot of the teams are based in Europe, but there's a good karting scene in the UK. You know, approach some of those teams. You know, offer your services for free. If you do a good job, then you can offer a package. No, mm-hmm. then then you've got Formula Regional, Formula Four. You've got then you start getting into the real game, which is Formula Three, Formula Two, Formula One. That's when you start to get to the kids who have an opportunity to get into Formula One. It's kind of like the football pyramid. You know, as you move up the grades, the closer you get to the top, the more professional it gets. But if you can get in at the bottom or getting close to the bottom and get some experience there, then you're marketable to the people above you. Or you get a little bit lucky and you end up with a kid who's got talent and got ability and who's got support and who's got the drive to be better, then they can move up the categories and you can move up with them. So if you take somebody like Lando Norris, his coach is a guy called John John Malvern, who's, who's a good friend of mine now, but he's been with Lando since he was in karting. And now Lando's in Formula One and John is with him too. And they've grown and developed as a coach and driver relationship for the last seven or eight years. So there are those opportunities. I think what frustrates me sometimes is, is when you get some of those messages, there's no demonstration of thought about the journey. It's about, can I come and do that? And it's like, yeah. no. And yeah, so firstly, you want to, yeah. I can firstly, imagine people, firstly, go on. Yeah, I, no, it's like, firstly, you know, understand the confidentiality. Understand that this is, the top 0.001% of athletes. And you want me to invite you that I've never met. You've just sent me a message on Instagram or LinkedIn to bring you to a race environment where you've never met the driver and just follow us around for a weekend. I mean, you're just demonstrating absolutely no awareness of what you're asking me or, or, or I guess challenging me to even reply to that in, in a civil way. Yeah. <laughs> but, but then you get some, some messages and I will put in some really big effort. And I, I've had Zoom conversations with people who, who demonstrate an awareness of the journey and they genuinely just want some advice and help about that journey. They're not asking me about the outcome. They're yeah. saying, I'm thinking about doing this. Do you think it's a good idea? You know, would it be a good avenue for me to go down if I wanted to get into sport? Have you got any advice around levels? Of sp- and I love those questions. And, and those questions are me 10, 15 years ago. And, and I really engage with those. And I will give those individuals the most time I can. And yeah, it's I'll a totally them- different proposition, though, than saying, you know. Different. Yeah, I think you're right. Like, whatever sports it is you want to get involved in, 
if it's elite sports you're aiming for, have your eyes on the prize, know where you want to end up, but also be cognizant of where you are in your career and try and find a level in the sport that matches where you are in your career and work up Absolutely. to that top level um, yeah. gradually. And, and look, you, you might demonstrate a really good skill set in that environment, but that will get recognized and that might move a little bit quicker. Yeah. And, and what I also say to everybody who, who asked me those kind of general questions is, Try not to pigeonhole yourself to a sport. Okay, we all want to be somewhere at some point. But I've gone through so many different sports, from Olympics to football to golf to boxing to F1. I learned so much from each individual sport because the characters and the personalities and the culture in each of those sports are so different, from team sport to individual sport to different types of coaches and, and for me, the freshness in learning the physiological, physical demands of a new sport really invigorates my career. You know, it's like being back in uni again and being like, right, I've got to get up to speed with this quick because my responsibility is to those athletes. And that's the one thing that drives me the most is I feel this huge weight of responsibility to the athletes that I work with because it's their journey that they've invited me on. And I have a responsibility not to let them down. So if I do something wrong in my role, it's not just me that I let down. I would never forgive myself if I thought for a second something I missed or didn't do to the best of my ability negatively influenced their performance because I'm just a part of their journey. It's their journey to own. You know, it's it's Alex Albon, the F1 driver. It's Michael Conlon, the boxer. It's, you know, it's whoever. It's not my journey. I'm I'm not front and four. I'm not I'm not making it okay, I'm making some sacrifices, but compared to what they sacrifice, it, it's it's not even close. So so there's that real weight of responsibility to these individuals to do the best job that I possibly can. And that's what drives it. Um yeah, it's like there's so much so much good advice there for for people who who want to pursue this career. And I, I think, yeah, you've got a unique story, but there's loads that people can take out from that story and you know apply it to their own situation. Yeah. You mentioned there, like we've said a couple of times that 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 sport, uh, Formula One in particular, it, you know, it is a particularly cutthroat sport. We mm. saw, you know, uh, you know, Alex, as you said, it has been a bit of a roller coaster. He's had a year in, a year out, a year back in now. So um you know, how do you quantify success with your athletes then when, you know, it, it, it could come down to something technical, like having being a, in a, a competitive car can make a big difference. If you're not a competitive car, how do you how do you quantify success for your athletes yeah. or how do you package that up for them? Yeah, so there's there's probably a couple of aspects to that from an individual point of view from from in terms of my role with with, say, Alex, for example, success for me is him being fit and healthy and having the physio, the physiological uh, makeup to be able to withstand the demands of the sport and knowing that his physiological and physical condition is not impeding his performance. So for me, that's one that's one box ticked. He's healthy, he's happy, he, he has adequate nutrition, he's well hydrated for races, he's turning up with a good jet lag plan. And when we get to a race weekend, nothing about his physical conditioning is impeding his performance. That's the really basic level of success for me, right tick. The biggest thing for me around Alex, especially over the last four years, is him growing and maturing as an individual and him being able to meet the physiolo- uh, sorry, the mental demands of the environment that he's in. And, and that's probably where his biggest growth has been. 
you know, the guy who stepped into Formula One at Toro Rosso four years ago is not the same guy that I see now stepping into Williams and leading the team and being brought in to help develop their car that really needs help and being able to have really confident, cognizant conversations with high-end engineers, with with aero, aero team, aero philosophy, about what that car needs to be better, to be quicker, for him to be able to drive it to the maximum of his ability and for the car to get the most out of the team's input. That guy four years ago couldn't have had those conversations. So there's a huge process, and, I, and I'm, I'm being very binary there in terms of describing it in that sense, but actually what I'm saying about him just growing as an individual within the sport, but also just growing as an individual and learning the appropriate emotional strategies to employ at different points within that journey when it's been really difficult and him understanding and having awareness of those emotional strategies and, and at times going, okay, that didn't work for me, how I responded that time. How can we make that better? And, and for me, it's holding a mirror up in those moments and going, so that behavior in that scenario, was that a positive outcome because you employed that behavior? Yes or no? Okay, let's deal with that. What do we need to do the next time to make sure that that's a positive interaction? And just seeing him grow as an individual, that's probably the biggest success for me. And, you know, we talk in Formula One a lot about podiums and races and points. The, if you said to me, what are the best moments of my career with Alex so far? It, it comes down to two conversations that we had. One in Mexico, in he had just gone to, to Red Bull and he'd had a big shunt in FP2. And we'd had a conversation on the Friday night around making mistakes and performance and, and actually how important it is to make mistakes because that's where we learn when we step out of our comfort zone and we're uncomfortable. And if we ask ourselves the right question and we have the awareness and we're not afraid to ask ourselves those difficult questions, that's where the real answers are. That's where the real growth is. And we had this really good conversation on the Friday night. And we woke up next morning, and got into the track, and we sat down to have breakfast in, in the hospitality. And he asked me two or three really insightful questions that demonstrated to me that he'd, uh, he'd had a think about the conversation we'd had the night before. He'd reflected on that, and he was trying to understand that a little bit more from his own behavior. That was number one. For me, that was incredible. Two years of work, and that was, that was the finest moment. And the second time was at the end of his Red, Bulls, his Red Bull second season. We were out for dinner in London. And we hadn't heard of a, a kind of final decision yet. It, it turned out subsequently he was being made a reserve driver. And, and we were talking about that as a potential outcome. And he said to me, I'm content because I know I didn't leave anything on the table. And, and that sentence to me meant more than anything, the two podiums he won, the, the three years in F1 that we'd had, that moved to Red Bull, even though that was amazing. That is true growth. That is a, this young guy understanding the limitations of where he was at at that time and knowing that he could be content with himself, even though it would potentially be his Formula One dream over, that, that in that period where he was at Red Bull, there was nothing else he could have done. Sure, there was things he could have learned from, but he felt like he'd left nothing on the table. And that was one of the proudest moments of working with him. That for me is growth. That for me is success. Because for me, what is more important to me about somebody like Alex is in 20 years' time, he can look back on his F1 career and think, I'm proud of that. I did everything I could in that period of time to be successful. Yes, it worked out. Maybe it didn't work out as well as I'd wanted it to. 
whatever it ends up being. I think he's going to be in F1 for a number of years yet. But for him to look back at that with pride is more success than looking back saying, oh, I got 10 podiums, but I was miserable. And him to be a healthy, happy, happy individual at 50, that's what success looks like for me in terms of the individual. Now, if we talk about success this year at Williams, success, you know, as we know about F1, there's races within races. And for him, it's about maximizing the package that he's got. So I would say his qualifying in Bahrain was in the top three qualifyings of his F1 career so far. We came out of Bahrain test knowing that we were about two seconds off the pace from any other car. And he goes and he gets out of Q1 with two of the best laps he's ever put in in a Formula One car. Now, he made it to Q2 and he finished uh, 14th. And to some people might look at that and scoff. But anyone who knows where that F1 car was at, for what Alex was able to deliver in that, that's success. Delivering a P13 in that race, that is success. You know, even if you look at last weekend, you know, certainly the qualifying didn't go as well as Barry, but that that was, again, probably limitations of the car. And the race up until that little incident with Stroll at the end was a mega race. And his race pace, especially on that hard stint, was, was equitable to anybody, you know, from P7 down to P15. Yeah. It's interesting. Around. It's it's remarkable, in fact, that the first part of what you were saying there in a sport that is so data driven and quantifiable to stay, well, to keep your eyes on the process as opposed to just purely focusing yeah. on the outcomes there. I think you'd be driven demented if you were only focusing on the oh. outcomes. So I think that, you know, that must be a challenge to, 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 to balance that and say, right, well, obviously the sport demands that we focus on the quantifiables, yeah. but also there's the, the process. And I think that applies back even into what we were saying to, to anyone looking to get into the sport. Viewers as not getting in straight into Formula One, you know, you're on this, view the process that you're on yeah. and enjoy that process as well. But if we even break that down, that as a philosophy down to the execution of a physical talent, the second you think about the outcome, you're not focused on the process of deliverance. So even to the point where what we figured out with Alex, so on, on the F1 wheels, some of the teams will have deltas of a predicted lap that they need to try and get to either to get through Q1 or Q2 or Q3 or whatever. And what we figured out was let's take that delta off drive the car to the best of your ability because that delta is a constant reminder of where you need to be in a minute and a half's time. The minute you're starting looking at your delta and looking, oh, I'm, I'm 0.1 off at that corner. I need to make that up. Oh, I'm 0.2 off. Okay, I've got another half second there. You're not, you're not, you're not focused on delivering what you're doing right now. So we just took that off the steering wheel to don't eat it. And the freedom that that has brought for him to stay present in that lap is incredible and and everything we do is i i never speak to an athlete about the outcome it's always about the process the outcome is a consequence of everything that you've delivered it doesn't come first the outcome doesn't come first the second we call it scoreboard pressure the second you start to allow that to creep into your performance you're not concentrating you're not present anymore you're somewhere yeah. else you're in the future and that's not where you need to be yeah, leaderboarding and just yeah, not focusing on what you're doing. It's, yeah. it's 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 remarkable. You did mention you you did mention a lot about the physicality of the driving. So like F one, it's obviously a very technical sport, mm. but 
you know, just how could you tell us about the physicality of the sport? I yeah. think it is. Well, I know it's remarkably physical, but just for people listening, like you know, what does what does it mean for a Formula One driver to be fit? You know, yeah. what are the what are the are the um, are the, the components of fitness? I guess that they need to excel at. They're not your typical strength, speed, power, endurance athletes. Exactly. But they are up there uh, in terms of performance, nonetheless. So, what is what does fitness for a Formula One driver mean to you and mean to your driver? Yeah, absolutely. Like, look, what you just said there is bang on. You know, a lot of sports there's a single biomotor of physical performance that determines your success. And with with something like F1, you need to be very athletic across a spectrum of biomotors. So, if you even take, let's start with aerobic capacity. You know, he will be in a car for anything up to five six hours across a race weekend. They will do three hours on a, well, it used to be three hours. It's two hours now on a Friday, anything up to two hours on a Saturday, and then another hour and a half, two hours on a Sunday. So just generally from an aerobic capacity perspective, his body needs to be able to maintain a a baseline across that physiological demand across three race weekends. And he needs to repeat that 25, 26 weekends a year. So there's a huge element of aerobic capacity there. Then you talk about anaerobic capacity in terms of, you know, his heart rate will be 160, 170 beats plus for extended periods of time across that race weekend. So that anaerobic capacity to be able to high, hold your heart rate at those high capacities for extended periods of time, whether it's due to adrenaline or, you know, first four or five laps in a race or he's defending a position or he's trying to overtake or he's moving through the pack. You know, the ability to just be able to tolerate those high heart rates for extended periods of time. So we do a lot of anaerobic threshold work to be able to elevate his heart rate and to work in those zones for extended periods. And it's in those zones where he actually has to be his most precise. So we do a lot of cognitive functioning around fatigue. So can you make good decisions under fatigue? Can you react quickly with precision when you're tired? So we do a lot of work around that as well. So we do a lot of reaction training. We do a lot of cognitive decision-making training. We do a lot of uh, memory recall training, either under fatigue or out of fatigue, just to develop his cognitive functioning. Then you take in something like, just imagine the next side of things. If you take a corner sequence like Maggots and Beckett's in Silverstone, there's about four corners there. It's a 5G, a 4G, a 3G, and a 4G corner. Just through that one sequence alone, because it had changed the direction and its high speed, you're talking about 140 kilos through the neck in one sequence one lap so you talk we maybe do 120 130 laps a race weekend that's 140 kilos by 120 by 130 and that's just one four sequence of corners never mind the other 16 17 corners so there's a shift in 10 huge yeah massive strength and endurance capacity in the neck shoulders trunk hips being able to deploy the brake pressure that he requires like huge lower limb loading and then you start to throw in some of the environmental factors in there. So if you take, just say, Hungary, for example, the track temperature two years ago was 56 degrees. He's sitting in a car. He's pretty much sitting on the engine. He's got a, a layer of fire retardant kit. He's got his race suit over it. He's got a balaclava. He's got a helmet on. He's got gloves on. He's got anything. I mean, it depends on the balance of weight in the car. But last weekend, he had 0.7 liters of fluid. And that's sitting in a bag behind his seat on the engine. So after about a lap, that's like a cup of tea and that's the last thing he wants to drink. So actually he drinks the majority of his water in the formation lap. And then he has to withstand those physiological conditions or those environmental conditions for an hour and a half during the race. 
So just on that, sorry to cut across you there. So is the, is the, the fluids that the driver can carry on board factored into the ballast yeah. that they bring in? Absolutely. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Okay, I didn't so realize that. Yeah, so that's added into the weight. So, so there's a limit. I know. Forgive me, but there is a lower limit for the driver and yeah. the, the safety cell cockpit thing that, that, that they are yeah, in. Yeah, the monocoque. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've got a heavier driver, you're you, you don't have as yeah yeah you yeah. don't have as yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And yeah, the fluid. Yeah. Oh God, that's tough going. Now. Absolutely. That, that's, so then you take a race like Singapore two years ago. He lost three kilos in that race. Yeah. Um, so you know, there's obviously glycogen in there, and and you know, is Alex a big? Is, sorry, is Alex a big guy? How tall is he? Yeah, he's six foot one. So he's probably the, he's probably the second first tallest in the grid. Is it okay to ask what, what like roughly what weight is he? Yeah, yeah. At the minute, he's about seventy three kilos. Okay, so yes, and losing so three lean. kilos. Yeah, losing yeah. three out of seventy three is is significant. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So the the spectrum of fitness, and and it's not just that they have to physiologically and physically meet the demands of that environment the precision comes after that so you still have to make as clear and concise a decision in the last lap of a race than you do at the first lap so the ability to be consistent with your decision making across that entire race across the entire race weekend is pretty phenomenal and the physical component of that is the foundation to be able to make those good decisions as well as, like I talked about, the, that cognitive functioning training that we do in terms of being able to concentrate for that extended period of time. Do you view that as a, as something that is a trainable characteristic of the athlete, that decision-making, the cognitive function under pressure? Is that something that they've refined or honed over many, many years and years of driving? And at this level, are you looking to maintain it? Or do you think it's a trainable characteristic where they can make gains in? Absolutely trainable, Yeah. There's a ceiling, which is based on their technical ability, but there, there will be elements within that. So what you need to do is break down specific decisions that a driver will have made at that specific time within a race. So if there is a decision that is not the right decision, then you need to reflect on that. What were the barriers to making the right decision? If that's technical, then we need to bounce that to the team. So was that a limitation of the car or was that a technical decision that you made in terms of an overtake, a whatever? Then you work back to, well, if there was a component on your side that you need to take ownership over, what was the gap in that decision that meant that that outcome was negative? Was that energy balance? Was that concentration? Was that speed of thought? Was that something around the emotional side where you, you know, replaying an event that happened in another race and thinking that that was the same and therefore you're not present anymore and something happened that was out of your control and you responded like you responded in a race previously because that was an experience of yours or you know was there too much going on in the environment your engineer was talking to you you lost a little bit of concentration you couldn't remember what the engineer said you made a stupid decision so there's each individual decision you need to break down and understand the components of that decision and only then can you really think about what's the plugging that i need to do right now to make sure that that decision in the next time, the next time that, that the requirement for that decision that comes around, you're in a better place to make a more positive, to have a more positive outcome. It's, it's just so much detail that you need mm. to really get into. And, and, you know, we can say the cognitive functioning as a, as a global terminology, but actually there, there's 10, 12, 14 elements to that. 
Yeah, and that's, I suppose, again, going back to something you said at the start, this is the level of detail and the type of depth that you can probably only really get into with an individual athlete. Yeah. It wouldn't, you know, if you had a squad of 20 or 30 athletes, you could not look, and I know the demands of, of a team sport are different, but yeah. you couldn't do this level. It would be, you, you know, you'd be the, the time involved or the volume of staff you'd need yeah. to do that analysis would be counterproductive. You mentioned something about energy balance there. That 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 pulls in another question. We had another student, Wen Ji, was asking, um, about nutrition and how you know how how do you manage nutrition with so much training like does alex have someone who cooks for him provides meals do you rely on what's available in hotels and in the in the catering or in in the hospitality at race venues do you have to help him make good decisions or can he make good decisions himself yeah generally he makes good decisions he eats really clean um to the point where actually sometimes i'm saying we need to get more calories in here and uh, i mean (laughs) we were driving to the race on uh, Sunday, and he was really underweight. He was underweight. He dropped a kilo from the day before, which we weren't really expecting, and his hydration wasn't bad, so we knew not a lot of that was water. And there's a another cafe in Saudi that we, we'd gone to for brunch. It's an LA-based company. And we were just like, well, come on, let's stop. Just went in and got him an almond croissant and a, a red chai latte. So, you know, the purists out there were like, oh, that's not the right kind of calories to be getting in at that time. And I'm like, I've got an underweight driver here he's he's low on his muscle glycogen we're going to refuel at the track anyway if i can get another seven eight hundred calories into him right now then i absolutely will do that the majority of the time everything that we do is really well planned out like you said we've got chefs at track who run our hospitality and i'll do a i'll do a race week plan for him before we fly out i'll send that to the chef on the monday and every meal and every timing of meal is planned out for that race weekend and we'll we'll fluctuate that a little bit based on his weights in the morning and his osmos in the morning. And then we'll adapt that based on how he is in kit on the scales and where he needs to be at the end of quality and at the end of the race. So yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll fluctuate a little bit with that within that plan. Just generally outside of that, it really depends on where we're at in our, our training program. So if we take early January into February, what I, we try and do is put two or three kilos of muscle mass on them just because I know that's going to come off across the race season. So we'll we'll bulk up a little bit. So we know we need to go high protein. We'll supplement his nutrition a little bit so that he's getting more calories in to support his recovery, getting good food in, good protein, good high-quality protein so that we can help repair that, that muscle damage that we, we want to create. So his, his diet plan in January will be very different to his diet plan in March to, to April to July. And, and we'll get little blocks where we might chase a little bit hypertrophy through the season because we've got a little bit of time. And again, we'll, we'll change his diet plan based on that. I work with a really incredible performance nutritionist, an Irish guy from, from Wicklow called David Dunn. And I've been working with him for years with, with a number of professional athletes. And he'll help us with that plan. So there's a lot of science behind it. And then we're just in charge of the delivery. And, and like I said, the problem with Alex, a lot of the time is generally he's underweight. Um, mm. And that gives us a bit of room to play with. There's, there's drivers out there that that is another issue. And that's a little bit more of a difficult one to manage. I'm guessing again, you know, underweight and not eating enough. It's it's because the, the the huge demands that are placed on the athletes. So there, it's not just that they are busy driving the car. There's a whole host of other, you know, sponsorship media demands that go around surround the athletes, and guess if you don't remind her to tell yeah. that athlete you know it's time to eat eat this mm. it's easy to overlook it and, and and skip a meal or you know lose out on a bit of nutrition absolutely and he'll spend the majority of his weekend bouncing between marketing and branding commitments appearances in paddock club media work 
so around TV pen, journalism media, to sitting in the engineer's room with his engineers. So it comes down to me bringing his food into the engineering room, putting it on his laptop and saying, eat that, coming in and out with enough fluid electrolytes at, at specific points, coming in with shakes and literally just going, eat that, drink that. Okay, Come, for an adults. Coming, yeah, coming back to check that he's finished his shake, finish that. We need that yeah. water on board. We need that shake on board. We, we need that fuel on board. And that's very much, you know, the nutrition around a race weekend is fuel for performance. You know, okay, we want to make it taste good, but it has to be functional. He loves his food and we try and eat out when we can and we, we eat in nice places in terms of just good quality food. Just not, I'm not talking about being Michelin star, but just good quality food. And he mm-hmm. likes that and he enjoys that. But he also understands that our race weekend, it can be just a bowl of tomato pasta because we just need that glycogen on board. Or we just need this shake because we need to recover that element of your, your nutrition. And we need to plug that in right now. So, yeah, we, we do have a lot of support from a nutrition point of view, like I said, performance nutrition and from our chefs at track. Uh, and then in the meantime, it, it's down to managing his weight in terms of looking at his skin folds, looking at his, his daily weights or his weekly weights and looking at his osmos when we're together. Very good. And so, yeah, it's, it's interesting to hear that it is going back, you know, some basic, simple measurements that, 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 that pl- That's what fill, all comes fill, back to. fill in the blanks. Yeah. yeah. Um, you also mentioned there, so we were, we were talking a little bit there about the, you know, the media, the sponsorship, uh, the marketing obligations. Uh, one of the, one of the lecturers in WIT was in touch in age. She wants to know, like, how do you work with, athlete, uh, with, uh, with Alex uh, or any other athletes to prevent those from being a distraction from yeah. this performance. So, you know, obviously he has to do those, yeah. but he also has to perform. So how do you help him to, to, to balance that out? There's two things with him. One, I kind of alluded to it at the start of the interview around him being an introvert and, and he doesn't get his energy from being around people. If anything, eventually that becomes a drain on his energy. So he, he finds the media commitments difficult and you know, he has a pure love for driving. That's why he's in the sport. He's not in it for the limelight. He could take or leave the media side of things. That's not what he's in it for. So so we've had to do a lot of work around his framing or his understanding of the requirements to do that and to be able to detach yourself from the energy side of it. It's just something you have to do. You don't need to invest emotion into it. And it's taken us two or three years to get to a point now where he can pretty much do whatever he's asked to do and it doesn't piss him off and it doesn't waste any of his energy. My job is I will get the media and I'll get the PR scheduled through about a week before each race. And then it's my job. I match that to our performance, our performance diary for the next four or five, six days. And I'll go back to them and say, we can't do that. We're not doing that. Move that to that time. Sandwich that together. We're not doing that. So that's my responsibility is to condense that and to reorganize that to, to times that I know will fit his schedule and fit his energy demands across a race weekend. And to be fair to the teams, they will defer to me a lot. And sometimes I go, look, we just really have to do this. This is something that we can't control. This is a major sponsor and he just has to do it. And sometimes he just has to do it because, you know, part of it is, you know, these teams exist because of these brands and because of the sponsorship that they get. So there has to be a little bit of give and take, but on the whole, we have a lot of control over what he needs to do across a race weekend. And like I said, we can optimize that schedule to fit with his performance schedule to minimize the impact in terms of his energy and the time that he needs with his engineers. 
Yeah, it's it's almost another trainable characteristic that he's, you know, he's learned how to deal with these yeah. over time. He's learned how to interact with the media or sponsors uh, to, uh, you know, maximize his time with them, but minimize the input, impact Absolutely. it has on him. Yeah, 100%. yeah fascinating. Um, what about um, another simple question? We had a, a little lad called Simon from Dublin and Touch, and he wants to know, where do you watch the races? So, we're, yeah, we're in the garage. Uh, so, yeah, with the engineers, you'll, if you see those walls of screens, hmm. Then yeah, I'll have a little little position on that. So, and are you the guy who who talks to Alex during the race? Just his, Who's chief, the... his chief engineer. He's the only person who can speak to the driver. So okay. so those engineers might have anything up to twenty twenty five channels of communication going at once. But Alex is the only, or sorry, James, Alex's engineer at the minute is the only guy that can actually speak to the driver. Now I can get a message to James, but I can't speak directly to Alex for good reason. Yeah, yeah, no, it makes sense, obviously, that yeah. there's only one person. I was wondering, uh, you know, whose voice was it? Was mm. it yours? Because you have that relationship. Because and, uh, now, you know, when you're watching on, for, on on Drive to Survive, it always seems to be like very simple, very measured messages that are delivered to the athletes, very controlled, nothing too inflammatory. And I, I, I thought that that must be someone who's pretty close to the athlete and understands what yeah. the athlete needs. So that's why I thought it might be you yeah. that does that communicating. Yeah, you know, like there'll be times you might write a little message and pass it to the engineer and he'll communicate that. Or it'll be a keyword that he will say in his next communication because you know it's it's something that will ground or trigger Alex in a positive way. Um, but yeah, generally, it, it like I said, it's only the engineer that will speak. Those guys have so much information coming through at once and it's actually a real skill for them to be able to stay in tune with what's happening on track and then be able to filter out all of the information, the key pertinent points to be able to deliver to Alex at the right time. And, you know, when I say watch the race, all I really look at is we've got a GPS, we've got a GPS of the track and you just see the dots moving and then the timing screen. I don't, the only time I watch a feed is if I know, you can see the dots, he's overtaken, I can see the gap in the interval dropping. I'll have a look at the screen, make sure everything's okay and then you're back to just... You, I just watch a duck go around the track. And I watch like, the when you're, like when you're going on holidays and you see the plane flying across that's the globe. Ex- that's exactly it. Yeah, you just see these little coloured dots, every driver, and you're just looking at the, the pace, the interval, and the dot moving. And you just, because you, you know, obviously within the strategy, you're looking at their overall pace and the tyre stint and what everybody else is on. And are we closing that gap? Is there somebody closing on us behind, et cetera, et cetera? If we pit, where do we come out? So you're, you're not really actually looking at the feed itself. You're just looking at some of the information. That's mad. That, that is, uh, not again, not what I expected for yeah. the answer to be. And you did say, like, there's there's obviously a huge amount of telemetry, GPS, massive volumes of data coming through to the pit wall uh, from the garage. So, like, does that, are there layers of filtration or does the pit wall get everything and they they just, as the one person, the race engineer, or, uh, decides what to feed through to the, to the driver? Yeah, so there will be, obviously, heads of other departments who will all be on those channels. And there will be key messages that he will either need to communicate to Alex or key messages that will feed into him around the strategy. So there will be the chief strategist who will be making strategy decisions based on, you know, tire quality, pace, what other cars are doing around them, pit, pit stop windows, virtual safety cars, safety cars, et cetera, red flags. That's one of the key pieces of information. Then there'll obviously be the technical side around the reliability in the aero, about damage, about engine temps about oil temps about water temps about the condition of the car about the condition of the tires so all of those stuff is happening in the background and and you'll sometimes hear the engineer say give me a tire update 
you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just Alex plugging in that last piece of information for them to make their decisions based on, on what they see from a telemetry point of view and also what the driver feels on track. Yeah, I very, this is a kind of a specific question that someone came in with. So the guys who are uh, involved in the pit stop, is that their specific job? So say you, you've got the guy who, who who takes a wheel off and then you've got someone else who puts a wheel on. Yeah. Do they have other functions in the team outside of uh, uh, when they're not on race day or is, is that their job? That no, they, no their they, job is- they, all will, they all have roles in the garage, but That's then they fingers. have specific roles in the pit stop team. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it's, it's not like their, their sole job is to take off a tire no. and put a tire back on. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, for some people, they would say that's the most important part of their weekend. But Massive, they, yeah. all ha- they all have roles outside of, yeah, just their pit stop. But that is a key component of the role itself. Yeah, I can imagine. I, well, I've tried to picture what it must be like to work in that environment because there is so much going on, yeah. not alone just with your own team, but then you've got other teams next door to you. It must be a mm. pr- real pressure cooker uh, of, of an environment to work in. So I'm not surprised, you know, when you said you need to, to for your own personal and psychological well, well, yeah. welfare, to step away from it and get home um, uh, regularly. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's a key element for anybody working in, intense environments like that is understanding yourself understanding what you need to be able to be ready to be in those environments on a consistent basis okay uh this is a, a, a different kind of question if i was to to meet alex or if i was to give alex a call now and if i ask him to describe you oh god how would he describe you how would he describe me he <laughs> he says i'm the most patriotic person he's ever met so he knows i'm very proud to be irish um and, and that's a bit of a running joke with us and, you know, part of, my, part of my job is to give him history lessons. So he, he's, he's well up to date with Irish history. He would say I'm calm. He would say I'm passionate. He would say I treat everybody the same, no matter who you are. He would say I'm honest. I've got integrity. I would hope he would say I've got a good sense of humor. And That's what brought you together. Yeah, that's what kind of initiated the relationship. I mean, there's probably other things he would say that I, I wouldn't expect or I probably wouldn't want to say on this podcast. But <laughs> we'll keep it polite. Yeah. Look, we've we've been through a lot together in terms of not just the sport, but, you know, we've been on a real journey in our own lives together and separately that have fed into our relationship on track. And, you know, me, you know, I would say he's part of my family because we've had such an intense period together and we spend so much time together and the relationship is so strong and I feel very comfortable. And I think it's a key important part of his development that he understands there's adversity in life. And he knows that he's been through a lot of things in his life, but not just for him, but for, you know, people around you, things happen in life that you don't want to happen and you have to just deal with that. And, and I'm really honest with him and we're really truthful with each other. And I don't try and hide anything from him. And I would say there's times where he supports me just as much as I support him. And that's the way the relationship is. And I think that's why it's so good. You know, obviously that doesn't happen very often, but I know if there's something that I need, he'll he'll understand that and he'll do everything that he can to support me in those in those scenarios. So it's a two-way relationship. And I think- Nice synergy between you. Yeah. yeah, there's a mutual respect there. That's brilliant. That I, I think that brings us almost full circle. We've come back to talking about to talking about Alex, how you guys met, and the type of relationship you have. That's what we started talking about. So, 
maybe we'll park it there. It's been fascinating. It really has been no fascinating. Uh, I, and I want to thank you very much no for, for, for taking the time to speak to me today. And I guess very importantly, I want to wish you guys well for the rest of the season. Thank you. Yeah, look, it's it's going to be an interesting year. Yeah, I think there's there's big gains to be made at Williams, and and hopefully, you know, they can they can do that over the next few races, and we can we can see ourselves moving up the table a little bit. Yeah, well, I know I'll be watching in earnest, and I know a lot of the listeners here will be also watching eagerly to see how you guys do. So, very best of luck for the season, and thank you very much for speaking to me today. No problem. Thanks, Bruce. Wow, I hope you guys enjoyed that chat as much as I did. Patrick certainly has one of the more unique jobs in sports. With only 10 teams and two drivers per team, performance coaches in Formula One are as rare as the drivers. I feel lucky to have been able to catch Patrick's attention and for him to agree to chat with me. I think he was very generous with his time and the information that he shared. His insight into the world of Formula One is astonishing really, and I think Patrick has unexpectedly found a sport that allows him to develop into the type of professional that he wants to be. In the run-up to this recording, so many people wanted to know about how to get into Formula One. Patrick's answer was relevant no matter what sport you're passionate about. Get involved at the lower levels, even through volunteering, and treat each opportunity like it's your dream job. Don't pigeonhole yourself into one sport. A digression into a different sport might give you valuable experience that will help set you aside from the rest. Think about the type of professional you want to be and steadily develop your skill set so that when the big opportunity presents itself, you are ready to step up. Okay, that's it for today. If you're still listening, you must be invested in the episode and enjoying it. Why don't you let others know by giving it a share online? As always, if you'd like to get in touch, then you can catch me on Instagram at B underscore Wardrop. I welcome any feedback or suggestions that you might have for the show. That's it for today. I'll catch you in the next episode.